Thanks for coming to Theological Equipping Class, where all semester we are studying church history. And, uh, and so over the past few weeks, we have talked about a number of, uh, of uh, heresies in the church. We talked about Trinitarian heresies, uh, and, then, uh, and then we talked about Christological heresies that were uh, infecting the church. And so this week, what we want to do is we want to see how the church responds to those threats in the form of, of councils and Creeds. And we've talked about one council already. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It was the council at uh, Nicaea in 325 AD. And so today we'll talk about three more councils in particular. We'll talk about Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. But first, let's back up a bit. And I want to talk about the importance of councils. I want to begin in, uh, in the Bible. Some of you are familiar with this story, but in the book of Acts, there is this uh, problem that the church is facing. There's this division that's growing in the early church uh, regarding the kind of the, the different theological responses to the question of the relationship of the Mosaic law to the Christian life. Some who were called the Judaizers taught that believers must keep the law, especially the law of, uh, of circumcision. Others, on the other hand, like Paul and the other apostles, said that Christ had fulfilled the law such that circumcision and these other aspects of the Mosaic law were no longer binding upon the Christian. But this was kind of dividing the early church, and so the, the, the issue came to a head in the early church, and the apostles convened this council. We call it the Jerusalem Council, and you read about that in Acts 15. And in this account, we see this uh, recipe that will inform all of the subsequent councils that we're talking about. That recipe involves three different ingredients. You'll see these three ingredients in all of the councils that we're talking about. First, there is some sort of doctrinal danger. There's this theological threat that's dividing the church, that's threatening the church. Second, there is this gathering of pastors together in what is called a council, and the, the purpose of that gathering is to address that particular threat. And then finally, there's some sort of formal response. Some sort of formal response is going to be produced by that gathering. You see, these three steps show up in the Jerusalem council. We also saw it in the Trinitarian heresies that brought upon the council of Nicaea. And then these same three ingredients will show up in Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon that we're talking about today. There's this theological threat. There's this gathering of pastors and bishops and so forth to address that danger. And then there's a formal response to that peril. That occurs over and over again throughout church history. So these councils are reactive. They're birthed out of conflict. In the face of these sort of false teaching and false teachers, the church would gather together to hash it out to respond to it. And the, their response was often some sort uh, of a creed. What's a, a creed? Well, a creed is this fixed formula that summarizes the essential articles of religion and uh, enjoys the sanction of ecclesiastical authority. It's this authoritative statement by the church of the boundaries of orthodoxy. The original word for uh, the creed was a symbolon uh, in Greek, which uh, kind of helps us understand the nature of a creed. What was a symbolon? Well, in, in Greek, a symbolon was this uh, authenticated item that was used to identify whether something was genuine or counterfeit. So think of having a $100 bill, and you're not certain if that $100 bill is actually authentic or if it is not. And, uh, and so you need a, an authentic bill in order to compare it to. That's what these creeds are. That's what a symbolon is. They're symbols. They're these authentic bills that were used uh, to uh, distinguish truth from error, from falsehood. And so not only are they reactive, but they're also ecumenical, which is from a Greek word uh, meaning of the whole world. In other words, it isn't just pastors of one local church or of, uh, of one city or of one area that are gathering together to discuss this. It's guys from all over the known world. It's universal as opposed to local. That's what ecumenical means, universal. Now there are two dangers that we need to avoid as we're going to be talking about councils and creeds, and those dangers come up as we ask the question, are councils and are creeds authoritative? And the answer to that is yes and no. No, if by that we mean are councils and creeds authoritative with the same type of authority as scripture itself? The answer to that is no, they, uh, they're not. 
uh, these councils, these creeds that we're going to talk about don't have the same type of authority that scripture does. Scripture is our ultimate authority. It's our primary authority. Councils have a secondary authority. They have a derivative authority insofar as they conform to the Bible. But some traditions invest too much authority in uh, the councils and the creeds. They invest this primary sort of authority. Uh, and so uh, you'll see that in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy uh, in particular. Carl Truman, uh, church historian, theologian, says this, both Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches invest such authority in the decoration of the institutional church that the church creeds can seem to carry an authority that is derived from the church's approval rather than conformity with the teaching of scripture. So the Roman Catholic tradition, the Eastern Orthodox tradition would look at these councils and they would say they are authoritative because the church has approved them. Whereas for the Protestant perspective, we would say they are authoritative not because the church has approved them, the authority doesn't derive from the church, but rather because they conform to scripture. The authority of these councils uh, comes from their uh, relationship with scripture, that they conform to scripture. But that's the first error, is investing too much authority. The second danger is probably going to be much more common uh, amongst us Protestants who tend to swing the pendulum from investing too much authority to not enough. So I wasn't saved until I was 23, but I grew up in church and never once in all of my time in church had I heard of the Council of Nicaea or the Constantinopolitan Creed, or Chalcedon, and I doubt that I'm alone in that. If I were to ask each of you in this room to name and describe the first six ecumenical councils, which are officially recognized by Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants, how well would you do in naming the first six of those councils that are recognized by every major branch of Christianity? I have a degree in historical theology, and yet whenever I was preparing for this lesson, I had to look up the fifth and sixth because I needed a refresher on them. So why is that? Why is it that we uh, are uh, unfamiliar and, uh, and rather ignorant of these uh, councils and creeds and so forth? Let me mention two factors. There's a number of them, but a couple of them. One related to the Reformation and the other to the Enlightenment. When it comes to the Reformation, one of the rallying cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura. Uh, the reformers said that scripture alone was the ultimate authority for the church as opposed to the uh, Roman Catholicism, which said that scripture and tradition share equal authority. It's called the magisterium. We've talked about the differences between uh, Protestant and Roman Catholic theology uh, before. So the Roman Catholic Church says that scripture and tradition share equal authority. Now the reformers loved tradition. Another rallying cry of the Reformation as it was uh, of the Renaissance was ad fontes, to the sources. And so that meant not only let's go back to scripture, but also let's go back to the original church fathers. Let's go back to guys like Augustine. So the reformers loved tradition, but over subsequent generations uh, in the Reformation, sola scriptura became this idea of solo scriptura. The, the fact that scripture is our ultimate authority was kind of interpreted as saying that scripture is our only authority which is not at all what the reformers meant. But as a result, this love for and respect for tradition that, uh, that guys like John Calvin and Zwingli and Luther and so forth had was replaced by this kind of mistrust or neglect uh, or ignorance of tradition. In other words, Roman Catholicism said that uh, scripture, uh, said that tra tradition has a sort of primary magisterial authority Whereas the reformers said that it had secondary ministerial authority. Uh, it's not our ultimate authority, but it has a helpful authority for us derived from scripture. But then you'll see the great grandchildren of the reformation says, what has no authority at all? And part of the reason for that lies in the enlightenment. This is encapsulated in the thought of guys like Immanuel Kant who said, enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. But notice how he defines immaturity. It's in your notes there. Immaturity is the inability to use one's own understanding without the guidance of another. Notice that individualism that marked the Enlightenment. That sort of attitude plagues not only secular culture in general, but also evangelicalism. 
as a result of these sort of philosophical presuppositions of modernism and postmodernism, we kind of are born into this default state of suspicion or distrust of, of tradition. So we kind of inherit this, this viewpoint uh, by virtue of, of where we're located in our culture and so forth. Uh, this, uh, we kind of inherit this idea of, I don't need guys like Athanasius or Augustine or Luther or Calvin or Edwards or Spurgeon. I just need me and Jesus and a glass of wine and a bubble bath and that's kind of all, right? This is kind of the rallying cry of contemporary Christianity is not sola scriptura, it's not even ad fontes, what is it? It's no creed but the Bible, which is itself a creed that's not even in the Bible. So listen to Spurgeon's rebuke to those who assume they can expound the scripture without the assistance from the works of divine and learned men who have labored before you in the field of exposition. It seems odd that certain men who talk so much of what the Holy Spirit reveals to themselves should think so little of what he has revealed to others. In other words, it's arrogance to neglect the role of tradition. Yes, it's not our final authority, but neither is it irrelevant or unhelpful. So we need to avoid the error of neglecting or dismissing or denying the role of councils and creeds and instead understand and appreciate their role in the life of the church. We talked about this a little bit with, uh, with heresies, that heretics are quoting the Bible. Everyone is quoting the Bible. Athanasius is quoting the Bible and Arius is quoting the Bible. Augustine's quoting the Bible and Pelagius is quoting the Bible. Everyone's quoting the Bible. Everyone says that they believe the Bible. The question is, what do you believe that the Bible is saying? Arius reads the Bible and he quotes the Bible and he interprets that to say that Jesus is a created being who's inferior to God. Pelagius reads the Bible, he quotes the Bible, and in that he thinks the Bible is saying that man is morally neutral and that he isn't born with a sin nature. So councils and creeds are attempts to kind of go beyond this reductionistic, simplistic sort of just believe the Bible and then answer the deeper and more important question of what does the Bible actually say about Jesus, about sin, about salvation, about whatever it might be. So in the gospels, Jesus asked this crucial question. He says, who do you say that I am? And everyone is answering that question. All of the heretics, all of the key figures that we're talking about uh, as we work through church history, everyone is answering that question. Some would say he's a prophet. Some would say he's a good teacher. Some would say he's a revolutionary. Some, like Arius, would say he's a created being or a quasi-God. Others would say he's God, but he's not human. Whatever it might be, everyone is answering this question. So councils and creeds help clarify how Christ himself and his word and his church answers that question. As it's been said before, councils and creeds add grammar to our groaning. They don't create the groaning, they just give it a, gra a grammar, they give it a language. Think about a, a child when he's young. My son who's one and a half, he knows what he wants but sometimes he can't form the right word. He'll just point to something and he'll just say please. So he'll come up and he'll want to be held and he'll, he'll just walk up and he'll hold out his arms and he'll just say, please. And I know that means he wants me to pick him up. But as he gets older, he learns a grammar for that groaning, a, a language for that longing, so also with the church and then with the individual Christian. Nicaea doesn't invent Trinitarianism. Nicaea doesn't invent the Trinity. God has always existed as Trinity. And Trinitarian theology is embedded in scripture. So Nicaea doesn't invent Trinitarianism, it simply gives us a language and clarifies these distortions of scripture. Likewise with Chalcedon that we'll talk about today. That wasn't where the hypostatic union was created. The hypostatic union has existed ever since the incarnation. The New Testament assumes and it implies and it teaches the hypostatic union and the early, the early church feels kind of the birth pains of that doctrine, but it's just this sort of grammarless groaning for the first few centuries. But at Chalcedon, we now have this consistent language to express this idea. Jesus is one person with two natures. He's truly God and he's truly man and so forth. So councils and creeds don't, uh, don't exist to add to scripture. They exist to help explain or to clarify or to articulate scripture and to prevent us from this simplistic, reductionistic, 
perversion of scripture. Think back to when you were a kid and, uh, and maybe you went to a friend's house and you got to jump on a trampoline, right? As an adult, the idea of just jumping for hours and hours on end doesn't sound pleasurable at all. It just sounds like it's gonna give you nausea or something like that. But as a pre-adolescent, it's like the ultimate opiate, right? You could just jump and jump for hours and hours and hours on time, uh, until one of two things happen. One, until mom calls you in for dinner. Or two, until somebody inevitably jumps off and breaks an arm, right? Those are the only two ways that you're ever going to get off of the trampoline. And so why was it, if you're, if you're like over the age of 35, you know someone definitively who's broken a bone on a trampoline. Why is it? Why was that so common? Because parents didn't love their kids back then? No, that's not the reason. But rather, because no one had really thought it through. No one had really thought about maybe letting kids jump 15 feet in the air off a five-foot uh, springy thing and then land just wherever happens to be below 20 feet down isn't the wisest or safest thing. So what happened? Well, around 1997, that's when this actually uh, became popular, companies started selling safety net enclosures for trampoline. Now, there's two ways that you can think about those. One is you can think about them as a killjoy, right? I love to jump off and I love to break my bone, right? I love to land on the shrubs or on a root system or something like that. That's one way you can think about it. These nets, they, they rob you of all of your joy and pleasure uh, and fun and so forth. The other way is you can think of them as helpful boundaries to protect you. I think the latter is correct, although I also think that they shouldn't be legally required because I think you should have the freedom to break a bone if you want to. But that image of this sort of safety net is what these creeds and councils are going to do. They provide these boundaries for our beliefs to protect us from spiritual imagery. Or think of bumpers in bowling whenever they put the bumpers out. They don't guarantee a strike, but they do guarantee that you won't roll it into the gutter. That's what creeds do. Or, or imagine driving along this mountainous road with no guardrails, right? What happens if you stray too far? The result is disastrous, right? Uh, Tiger Woods experienced that this past week. So these councils, these creeds, they functioned as these bumpers, as these safety nets, as these guardrails, but also kind of like street lights. They're, they're pedagogical, they're instruments used in catechesis, uh, the training of baptismal candidates to kind of summarize these essential teachings of the church. And as guardrails and street lights are there for your joy and for your life, so are these councils and creeds of the early church. So now I think you can see the danger and the arrogance in ignoring these boundaries and tearing down the guardrails, shooting out the street lights and saying, I can do this all on my own. I don't need Nicaea. I don't need Chalcedon. I don't need Athanasius. I don't need Augustine. I can do it on my own. So with that sort of degree of respect, and understanding for the councils and creeds, let's turn our attention to them. Within the early church, there are a handful of ecumenical councils. Again, ecumenical means universal. In fact, there were seven of them. Protestants uh, affirm only the first six. The Eastern Orthodox tradition affirms all seven. Roman Catholics affirm not only these seven, but also subsequent councils, like uh, if you've ever heard the Lateran councils or the Council of Trent in the 16th century. But from a historical perspective, there were seven worldwide councils before the split between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, and then the later split between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. In addition, there were a number of other councils or synods, but they weren't universal, they weren't ecumenical, they were more localized. They're called minor synods or councils, but the ecumenical councils are as follows. Again, there's seven of them. The first one is Nicaea. We've talked about that before. In 325, that's where they affirm that Christ is fully God. As we've seen, the main sort of concern, the main theological threat was uh, Arius, who taught that Jesus was a creature. He's not the creator. He was like God, uh, the, uh, the, the Greek phrase, homoousios. He's not himself God, homoousios. Uh, the church said, in response, well, if he isn't God, then we aren't saved. And that's a really big deal. So that's Nicaea. The second ecumenical council was Constantinople. We'll talk about that today in 381, which affirmed that Christ is fully human and the spirit is fully God. Then you have Ephesus in 431. We'll also talk about Christ is only one person. 
not multiple persons. And then Chalcedon in 451, you can also pronounce it Chalcedon, some people pronounce it uh, either way. 451, Christ has two distinct natures, we'll talk about that as well. And then uh, in the fifth ecumenical council, that's the second council at Constantinople in 553, continued to defend the idea that Christ has two uh, distinct natures against the idea of monophysitism, which we talked about last week, which says Christ has only one nature. And then the sixth ecumenical council was the third council at Constantinople in 680 to 681, which affirmed that Christ has two wills as opposed to monothelitism, that Christ has only one will. This was really important as we saw last week because if Christ doesn't have a human will, then your will isn't redeemed. Remember, we talked about last week, he only redeems what he assumes. So if Christ doesn't take on a human will or a human soul or a human personality or whatever it might be, then that part of you is not saved. And then the uh, seventh ecumenical council, which again, Protestants don't recognize, is the second council at Nicaea in 787, which said that the church can use images in worship. If you wonder why Protestants generally don't recognize this, perhaps you can see something is different in this seventh council from the previous councils. Namely, it isn't fundamentally about the nature of God or the person of the Son of God and the meaning of the gospel. Instead, it was uh, caused by the iconoclasm controversy, which is formed from two words, icon, which means image, and clastes, which means breaker. The iconoclasts were kind of the original statue topplers because they believed that any representation in art of any sacred person or idea was idolatry. So they destroyed religious paintings and sculptures and icons and other works of art, and that was the context of this final uh, council that we're not gonna talk much about today. Today, we're going to focus mostly on uh, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. But that's the seven ecumenical councils of the early church. A few weeks ago, we talked about Nicaea and the Creed of Nicaea in 325. Why was Nicaea convened? For both political and theological reasons. For the Emperor Constantine, the church was primarily, uh, the council was primarily for political stability. He didn't care so much about theological precision as uh, imperial unity. But for guys like Athanasius, there was this theological necessity. Unity is great, but not if you're unifying around error. That's a lesson that modern evangelical culture needs to learn because for much of the American church, unity is the supreme virtue, but historically that's not the case. As Martin Luther said, unity if possible, but truth at all costs. Modern culture reverses it and says unity at all costs, truth if possible. So the early church recognized there's no room for unity between the views of Athanasius and Arius. One was saying that Christ is creator The other one is saying that Christ is creature. That's not semantics, that's not splitting hairs. So Nicaea solved that, condemned Arianism and uh, as being beyond the bounds of truth and orthodoxy. That said, Arianism we'll see will pop up again uh, and again throughout church history. It exists not only in cults like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, but even in allegedly Christian churches. So last year, Ligonier surveyed Christians, quote unquote Christians, and one of the questions it asked was, is Jesus the first and greatest being created by God? How would you answer that question? Well, 55% of those who responded said, yeah, that's true. Another 15% weren't sure. Only 20% strongly disagreed that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. In other words, only 20% of all these quote-unquote Christians believed what 100% of all Christians have ever believed. So this is what happens when for the past 150 years, the church has dropped the ball on equipping our people and exalted the heart over the head. Let's go back to Nicaea. After Nicaea, the next council is going to be at Constantinople. That happens in 381. This is the second ecumenical council. What are the threats that are facing the church? There are a few. First is a view called Macedonianism, all right? It's not just someone from Macedonia, but Macedonianism was a heresy that developed in the latter half of the fourth century. They agreed with the church, uh, with Nicene uh, uh, theology in regards to the deity of the Son. They said that the Son was equal to the Father, but they didn't say the same thing of the Holy Spirit. They deny the deity of the Spirit. If you remember, in the Creed of Nicaea, it just said, we believe in the Holy Spirit. That's all it said. It didn't say anything about what we believed about the Holy Spirit. So they would say, we also believe in the Holy Spirit. We just don't believe that he is divine. Interestingly, 
When the Council of Constantinople was called, 36 Macedonian teachers were invited in the hopes that they would receive correction by the council, but all 36 who showed up ended up walking out rather than assent to the, uh, the, the Nicene faith. But the deity and the equality of the Spirit was confirmed at Constantinople with these words, I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's what Nicaea had already said. And then they went beyond that and said, the Lord and life giver who proceeds from the Father who with the Father and Son is worshiped and glorified. So that's Macedonianism, the denial of the deity of the Spirit. That was uh, refuted at Constantinople. The second danger that Constantinople addressed was Apollinarianism, which we talked about last week. It's this Christological heresy saying that Jesus was physically human, but he didn't have a human soul or a human will or a human mind. Remember the image of, of God in this big old man skin suit, right? The son of God didn't become man, he just simply gets a body, that's all. That's Apollinarianism, and Constantinople will reject it, but it won't be until the next two councils that that rejection will be fully clarified because of the theological principle, whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. If Christ lacked a human soul, then human souls are not redeemed. And so that seed of Christology is planted at Constantinople and will then blossom at Chalcedon that we'll talk about here shortly. Not only did Constantinople address Macedonianism and Apollinarianism, it also addressed the era of Sabellianism, which we talked about a few weeks back under early church heresies. Sabellianism is also known as modalism, which is the idea that God is just one person He's not three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's one person who just simply appears in various modes or manifestations. So sometimes he appears as a father, sometimes he appears as the Son, sometimes he appears as the Holy Spirit. Uh, Think of the analogies that you might be familiar with, that that, uh, God, the Trinity is like water and, and ice and steam, or the Trinity is like a father who is also a husband, who's also an engineer. That's modalism, that's Sabellianism in Constantinople rejected that. So in summary, Constantinople reaffirmed Nicaea and it dealt this somewhat decisive death blow to Arianism. Though it stuck around among variant groups and it's, uh, it's never again battled for consideration as being the orthodox way of understanding the Son of God. So now we've seen these two of the three ingredients of a council. There's a theological threat. There's a few of them actually for uh, Constantinople. So then they call a council together. They do that in 381, Constantinople. And then what about the third ingredient? The third ingredient, what's the church's formal response? Well, that's articulated in what's known as the Nicene Creed or the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. You'll see that in your notes. Let's read that. We believe in one God, the Father, all-governing creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being, who for us men and because of our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and rose on the third day according to the scriptures and ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and will come again with glory to judge the living and dead. His kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver who proceeds from the Father, later tradition will add also and the Son and that will cause this schism between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. We'll talk about that in a few weeks who proceeds from the Father, who is worshiped and glorified together with the Father and Son, who spoke through the prophets, and in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We confess one baptism for the remission of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That's the Nicene Creed or the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed or the Creed of 150 Fathers. It's known as all of those. Now, 50 years pass between the second and the third ecumenical council, which was at Ephesus in 431. And here's the historical context uh, leading to that conflict. Uh, We've already talked about Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism, uh, Apollinarianism was officially condemned by the Council of Constantinople in 381. And then Apollinaris died the next year in 382. And a few teachers really hated Apollinarius. But they thought 
that we need to completely rethink the incarnation in light of Apollinarianism. Unfortunately, the way that they did so was by dividing Jesus into two persons, one human and one divine. And so when Jesus was hungry or tired, they said that was human Jesus. That was the human person of Jesus. When Jesus forgave sins though, that was a different person. That was the divine Jesus. And this view was called Nestorianism. Rather than one person with two natures, the Jesus of Nestorianism said that Jesus was two persons with two natures. And the problem we saw with this last week and that the church recognized was that by saying that Jesus is two persons, and that the human person acts in accordance with his human nature, and the divine person acts in accordance with his divine nature, is that when it comes to the death of Christ, Nestorianism would imply that's just the human person. And therein lies the problem, because as we've seen over and over, Christ must be both God and man for his death to be a sufficient substitute. So Nestorius and his buddies taught this view, it's called Nestorianism, Uh, of Christ as two persons, and they were opposed by a guy named Cyril of Alexandria. And Cyril of Alexandria appealed to Valentinian III, the Roman emperor, and Theodosius II, the emperor of the Eastern Empire. And then those emperors in turn called an ecumenical council at Ephesus in 431. This is the third ecumenical council. Now, as an interesting historical fact, Nestorius's main supporter was a guy named John of Antioch. And his crew got stuck in traffic, so to speak. They were delayed, not just a few hours or even a couple of days, but for two weeks. So the the council finally decided we can't wait any longer and they convened without them over the protests of a few bishops. And so the council acted fairly quickly and condemned Nestorius and deposed him from his office. And a few days after that, John of Antioch shows up and he hears that uh, Nestorius was condemned And he said, well, we'll see about that. So he convened another council of his own that was smaller than Cyril's. And guess what? That council under John's leadership just so happened to say that Nestorius wasn't the heretic, Cyril was the heretic. So then Cyril's uh, council again convened and not only uh, reaffirmed the condemnation of Nestorius, but also condemned John of Antioch and his whole posse. And you thought church history was boring, right? This is like uh, real housewives of the early church or something like that. And this could have gone on indefinitely with uh, councils and counter councils and so forth. But but instead the emperor intervened and he arrested both Cyril and John. He declared both councils void and he put John and Cyril in a room together and said, work it out or you won't get out of the room, right? Kind of like parents do with their kids, right? So they actually were forced to kind of hash it out, work through the issues, and they worked through a formula of union in 433 where John actually agreed with the condemnation of Nestorius and so the council of Ephesus was affirmed. So Nestorius was banished and lived the rest of his life in exile and shame. Even his friends had turned on him. He died in 450, one year before the church would produce the definitive statement on the hypostatic union in 451 at Chalcedon. Now, another threat that Ephesus also addressed was Pelagianism, which we'll talk about more in depth in two weeks. But at Ephesus, Pelagius is officially declared a heretic. Why? What did Pelagius teach? One of the main issues was his view of grace and sin. In particular, he didn't believe that man inherited original sin or a sin nature, but rather that man was morally neutral. And this view was condemned at Ephesus because it completely disregards uh, the view, the orthodox view of grace. Man doesn't actually need grace in the way that you and I would understand grace, but we'll understand, we'll discuss that more in depth in two weeks as we talk about Pelagius's battle with Augustine and even a little bit next week as we talk about Augustine himself. So though Pelagianism was condemned, it didn't die. Remember, uh, that's one of the marks of heresies. They're like weeds. They may go dormant for a season, but eventually they spring up again. So we'll see Pelagianism pop up throughout history. You'll see it in the Enlightenment. You'll see it in the Second Great Awakening with guys like Charles Finney. You'll see it even in churches today. Back to the Ligonier survey I mentioned earlier. Here's the prompt. How would you respond to this statement? Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Well, 65% of the people who responded agreed. Only 14% strongly disagreed. And that's a result of Pelagianism. Now, that council at Ephesus 
which took place in 431. Um, 20 years later, we have our fourth ecumenical council at Chalcedon, which kind of clarifies the boundaries of Orthodox Christology by teaching that the Son of God is one person with two natures. So by this point, the church had this universal statement on Trinitarianism. They clarified certain aspects of Christology, but they didn't have a kind of fully articulated statement on the way to understand the hypostatic union, the union of Christ's hypostases or natures, his deity and humanity. So Chalcedon will clarify these boundaries regarding this union. So let's back up to see the context. Why was this council necessary? When we left the council of Ephesus, there was this truce between Cyril, the bishop of Alexandria, and John of Antioch. Remember, they were put into a room together and said, work it out. And this truce was great because Alexandria and Antioch were always fighting. They, they were like the Montagues and the Capulets or the Hatfields and McCoys or the Aggies and the Longhorns of the early church, right? The, some of that conflict was, was political as they kind of sought primacy in the East. Each of them wanted to be kind of viewed as the preeminent church in the East, but much, much of it was theological. They simply disagreed and history has proven Alexandria correct. Antioch typically produced distorted Christologies. But after Ephesus, there was this temporary truce between the two uh, cities. But the main historical theological threat that precipitated the need for another council was a guy named Eutyches, who we talked about last week. Eutyches was old and he was cranky and not the most subtle or nuanced or precise theologian. And Eutyches hated Nestorianism. He knew that if the son was two persons, then that implies that only the human person dies and thus that doesn't provide for us atonement. So far, so good. But whereas Nestorianism said that Christ is, uh, has two persons, Eutyches says not only is he not two persons, but he doesn't have two natures. He only has one nature. The, the divine has mixed with the human nature. Like yellow and blue make green or a, a lion and a tiger make a liger. Right, so, so Patriarch Flavian of Constantinople condemned Eutyches and that eventually blew up into Emperor Theodosius II calling for a council to meet, guess where? Not Chalcedon, actually, Ephesus in 449. Unfortunately, that council was a farce. The president of the council refused to let Pope Leo's representatives speak and the Bishop of Constantinople was manhandled so violently that he died a few days later. In other words, this wasn't an ecumenical council at all. They simply allowed some people to speak and not others. As tends to happen when proceedings are a sham, the result was horrid. The idea that there are two natures in Christ was declared heretical and anyone who degreed was condemned. Well, the Pope obviously didn't like this. And so he called this council a, quote, robber's synod. But his protests were dismissed. Anyone wanna guess why his protests were dismissed? I'll give you a hint. The summer after I graduated high school, the great philosopher Puff Daddy said, it's all about the Benjamins, right? Someone had paid off the emperor. Someone had given the emperor a stack of gold to ignore all the other voices and to rule in favor of the Eutychians. But then by a stroke of providential luck, the emperor fell off his horse and broke his neck and he was succeeded by his sister, Pulcheria, and her husband, Marcion, not the early heretic Marcion that we've already talked about. But Pulcheria, the, the empress, was not convinced that the previous council in 449 had been just or ecumenical. So at the, behest, uh, at the behest of Pope Leo, she called a new council. That was the council at Chalcedon in 451. That council condemned Eutychianism and then also condemned Dioscorus, who was the president of the robbers' synod, but forgave everyone else who had participated in it. And the theology that was affirmed there at Chalcedon was basically an articulation of what Tertullian had taught centuries earlier. If you remember, we talked about the early church father, Tertullian, uh, before. And Tertullian had said that in Christ there are two natures in one person. You see this in his uh, statement there that's in your notes. We see plainly the twofold state which is not confounded, but conjoined in one person, Jesus, God and man, the properties of each nature is so wholly preserved. So in sum, what Chalcedon did is it clarified that Christ is one person with two natures. He's truly God and he's tru truly human. Whatever it means to be God, he's that. Whatever it means to be human, he's that. 
He's not one nature, contra Eutychianism. He's not two persons, contra Nestorianism. He's not only partially human, contra Apollinarianism. And this therefore became the orthodox position on the hypostatic union and is expressed in the Chalcedonian definition. By the way, this is uh, called the Chalcedonian definition, not the Chalcedonian creed. It's the definition or the Chalcedonian confession. Creeds were intended to be these short, succinct, memorable, kind of like the Pledge of Allegiance. It's, it's this statement regarding in whom do you believe more than what do you believe. But the response of Chalcedon was actually much longer. It included the full text of the original Creed of Nicaea and the adopted Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed and a description and condemnation of various heresies that had arisen since Constantinople. So it was multiple pages long and then it concludes with the statement that is most identified as the Chalcedonian definition today. Let's read that section. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable or rational soul and body, consubstantial, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial of the same substance of the same nature with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin begotten before all ages of the father according to the Godhead and in these latter days for us and for our salvation born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of, of natures being by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has been handed down to us. I want you to notice a few things. First, the beginning. They say, we then, following the Holy Fathers, Notice again, they're not inventing Christology. They're simply giving grammar to the groaning. And they're doing so by clarifying truth from error. They're recognizing the biblical boundaries and saying, go beyond these to your own danger. For example, what phrases defended against Apollinarianism, the, the view that Christ had a human body, but not a human soul? You'll see those underlined, that he's perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. There's nothing about his manhood that is lacking. He's not lacking a human soul or a human spirit or a human will or a human mind or human emotions or whatever it might be. He's truly God and truly man. He's of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us. And then what phrases defended against Nestorianism, the view that Christ is two persons. Those are all in bold. He's one and the same Son, not two persons. He's one of the same Christ, Son, Lord, indivisibly, inseparably, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son. And then what phrases defended against Eutychianism, the view that Christ has one blended nature, like a donkey and a horse make a mule. Those are in red, that he's two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. So kind of as a summary of Chalcedonian Christology, you see that Jesus Christ is truly and completely divine. He's not just like God. A lot of the heretics would say he's like God. Arius would say he's the like God. He's not just like God, he is God. Jesus Christ is also truly and completely human. He's not just like a man. He doesn't just appear to be a man or have some of the aspects of, uh, of humanity. He is human. He has a human nature. The divine and human natures of Christ are distinct. They aren't mixed together. They don't become this other sort of semi-God, semi-human thing. And then the divine and human natures of Christ are completely united in one person. He's not two different persons. In other words, in the early church, in these councils, we see that uh, who Christ is cannot be divided from why he came. 
This is why this is so important, why these councils and creeds are so important, because unless you understand who Christ is, you don't really understand why he came and what he did. If he's going to save, then he has to be a savior. And if he's going to be a savior, then he has to be both fully God and fully man. And where you shirk on one of those, your salvation is affected by that. And that provides these broad boundaries of Christology. Uh, in fact, and these boundaries have held intact for uh, almost 2,000 years, but there were later advancements that kind of helped to clarify things a bit more. The fifth and sixth ecumenical councils at Constantinople further clarified that Christ has two natures and two wills against monophysitism, which says Christ has one nature, and monothelitism, which says Christ has one will. Both of those were condemned. We talked about why last week, so you can go back and listen to that. But the, the idea is they compromise the gospel and the idea of salvation being entirely of God by distorting who Jesus is. That's what all of these heresies do. So in doing so, uh, what the church is doing is the, the church is distinguishing between the, the properties of a nature and that of a person. It's not the divine nature that becomes incarnate. It's the person of the divine son who becomes incarnate. And then what's true of either nature can be said of the person, but not of the other nature. So for instance, the person Jesus, the son of God, became tired. That's true of the person, but we know that's a function of his human nature. So you can say Jesus grew tired, but you couldn't say the divine nature grew tired. This is really important because when it comes to his death, when we talk about his death, we can say the person of Jesus, the son of God, died. But we don't say that his divine nature died. His divine nature can't die. So you understand how what's true of the person, uh, what's true of either nature is true of the person, but not necessarily true of the other nature. That was one development that was clarified over the century subsequent to Chalcedon. Another development uh, was the church later clarified what's sometimes called the extra Calvinisticum because of uh, John Calvin's systematic teaching on the subject or the extra Catholicum because the entire church has generally held it uh, well before Calvin. What is it? The extra Catholicum or the extra Calvinisticum uh, is the idea. The extra is the view that in the incarnation the son not only retained his divine attributes but also continues to exercise them in Trinitarian relation. That's by uh, scholar Stephen Wellham. As a Muslim teacher once asked me, uh, whenever I was talking to him about this, he said, so are you saying that uh, little baby Jesus is still upholding the universe by the word of his power? And my response was, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Right? He never ceases to be God. He never ceases to do the things that God does, like exercising providential control over all things. As the early church says, remaining who he was, he became what he was not. The person of the Son of God retained his divine nature, but he added a human nature to his person, and that's Orthodox Christology. Now, fast forward 1,570 years from Chalcedon to today. In a millennium and a half, the church has never come up with a better articulation of Christology. These are the boundaries in which our thinking of Christ should abide. There have been critiques of Chalcedon. You'll see that throughout church history, but there's never been any suggestion that it's actually better, and that's the point, right? Every single time somebody has lobbed a grenade at Chalcedonian theology, they've suggested something that's even worse. They've had to discount some of the data of scripture in order to offer their rebuke. We see that in the Enlightenment and in liberal theology today and in canonic theology, which teaches that Jesus emptied himself of his deity at the incarnation. But each of these critiques that you'll see over the next 1,500 years doesn't actually, solve the pro doesn't actually solve the problem, it just creates bigger problems. It's kind of like critiquing capitalism and then suggesting that communism or socialism is better instead. You just trade these couple of potential problems for mass genocide and rampant poverty, well done. So I wanna end again by awakening this sort of appreciation for the ministerial role of councils and creeds and definitions, and I wanna do so by way of a story. On a trip to, uh, to South Sudan, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago or something like that, um, we needed to drive to an orphanage. We were gonna go out to an orphanage and do some teaching, but there was some sort of crisis at the compound where we were staying, and so one of our, uh, none of our drivers were able to go because they were all helping with the, the crisis. So um, they just handed me keys 
and gave me directions and said, this is where you, uh, where you want to go. And so uh, my team got in the SUV and I cranked the engine and I was about to take off. And all of a sudden, the, the pastor of the church that we were partnering with comes running out and, uh, and asked me to roll down the window. And, and I, I did so. And he stared at me really awkwardly. And he said, uh, Brother Jeff, stay on the roads. And, uh, and I said, okay. And he, he said, no, 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 no. Stay on the roads, no matter what. He said, if a car is overturned, if, uh, if a cow's in the road, both of which are really common there in Sudan, he said, uh, no matter what, stay on the roads. Don't go around it, just wait. And he stared at me for an awkward amount of time and I felt self-conscious and I was a little embarrassed like he thought I was gonna off-road or something like that. Um, and, uh, and then all of a sudden it hit me. The reason that he was saying that was not because he wanted, he thought that I was immature and I was gonna go and you know, just go mudding or something like that. The reason was because at this point in Sudan's history, it was, had uh, some of the largest concentration of IEDs in the world. Uh, landmines and other sort of uh, improvised explosive devices because of the conflict there in Sudan. And so the roads were cleared. They'd already cleared all the roads, but most of the surrounding areas around it in the, uh, the part of South Sudan we were at had not been uh, cleared. And so he wasn't trying to be some sort of killjoy. Instead, he was offering me this advice for my own joy and for my life. I'm reminded of that when I think of these councils and creeds. We've spent a little bit of time trying to show you why Arianism and Apollinarianism and Nestorianism and Eutychianism and so forth are not only wrong, but also devastating uh, to your faith because they end up dis distorting not only the nature and character of God, but also the gospel. So hopefully you can see why these particular errors are dangerous, but at the same time, we've just kind of scratched the surface of these heresies. We won't be able to point out each and every landmine along the way. Heresy never sleeps. The enemy is always working to distort the truth, but that's not something that we need to fear. Instead, we just stick to the roads. Stick to the roads of Nicaea and Constantinople and Ephesus and Chalcedon. For 2,000 years, the church has driven these same roads. There's joy, there's safety to be found there. And for 2,000 years, every time someone has tried to leave the road, they've hit a landmine every single time. So we don't have to reinvent Christianity each Sunday or each time you sit down to read the Bible, we stand on the shoulders of brilliant and godly men who, yes, were flawed, but nevertheless paved these trusted roads with their sweat and blood. And next week, we'll talk about one such man, singularly significant in the early church, Augustine of Hippo. For now, let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, the role of tradition. I thank you for the role of uh, these men and women who have gone before us and have uh, labored and have shed their blood and their tears and their sweat in order to uh, clarify these things for us, to do the heavy lifting for us so that we can walk where they have walked and, uh, and know that there's safety and joy to be found there. And so I pray that you would protect us from, um, from idolizing those who have gone before us, uh, but at the same time, I pray that you would protect us from ignoring them and, uh, and so I pray that you give us this deep uh, and abiding appreciation for uh, church tradition and in particular for your role in providentially guiding it. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.